Life is full of difficult questions. For example, riddles. Riddles like if you have two coins that equal 30 cents and one of them is not a quarter, what two coins do you have? And of course the answer is a nickel and a quarter. A nickel is the one that wasn't a quarter. If there are eight oranges in a bag and you take two, how many oranges do you have? You have two oranges, the two that you took. A man went 40 days without sleeping. How did he do it? He slept at night. What's something that gets wetter the more it dries? A towel. What word becomes shorter after you add two letters to it? Short. What are two things you can't eat for dinner? Lunch and breakfast. So, all right, you guys are with me. And these are hard questions of life. But those aren't the difficult questions we want to talk about in our sermon series that we're starting this morning. Over the, the summer, we're going to be talking about a few more difficult questions, things that cause us to question our faith, maybe. And that's what this series is titled, Questioning Our Faith. Our goal is to ask some of the most difficult questions that our own minds and hearts or our culture around us might pose to the Christian faith, to God, to his word, to Christ himself. What are the difficult questions that we have to ask and we want to wrestle with and not run from them, but actually lean into these questions? I think it's actually really, really important to ask hard questions and to engage in your doubts. Those are the very things that will drive you to actually knowledge and to learning. Only when we explore what we don't know or what causes us doubt do we grow in our understanding. If we never engage with our doubts, never ask hard questions, we will end up uh, realizing our faith is actually pretty shallow because we've never wrestled with the harder things. Doubt does not have to be the enemy of faith. Doubt can be the thing that actually drives us into greater faith as we learn to trust in the Lord. And if there are any along the way who don't know the Lord, my prayer is that this exploration of hard questions will maybe cause you to meet him for the first time, to know him and know his majesty in Jesus Christ. Uh, There is a warning that goes along with this that as we explore difficult questions, the answers we receive may not always be comfortable. Job found this out as he threw out question after question to the Lord, and finally when he was confronted with the answer, it wasn't maybe initially the answer he thought he might get. He was wanting to solve all the answers of life and why does this happen to him? And in the end, he was just confronted with the bigness of God and that was a sufficient answer. And my prayer is that through all of this, that's what we will be confronted with, that God is big in all his majesty and glory and no matter what questions we have, he is enough. Our first question this morning is one of the major questions of our time. It's the question of exclusivity. It's the question that asks, and this is our main question this morning, is Christianity really the only true faith? Is Christianity really the only true faith? How can this be, our world would ask? How can Christians claim to know the truth? How can Christians claim that their faith is the only true faith? Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that exclusivist and and narrow to say that everybody else is wrong and you're right? Is Christianity really the only true faith? It's a difficult question because we are people who are used to having options. So when we drive 
home after church, we're going to pass by, or I'll pass by, roughly 500 restaurants before I hit my house. And even if I just want to narrow that down to cheeseburgers, that leaves me with about 100 options before I get home. And then when I get home, I can pull up one of my hundreds of screens that I have in my house, and I can watch any one of 30 different streaming services and choose exactly what I want to watch. We are inundated with options at all times. There used to be something, this is my old man moment, um, there used to be something called Saturday morning cartoons. Do you know why they were called that? Because they were on Saturday morning and that was the time you could watch cartoons. This is going to be mind-blowing for you who are younger. Like, we couldn't just pull up Transformers at any time. I had to wait till Saturday morning to watch Transformers and X-Men and all the other shows that I loved, right? I didn't have all options before me at my fingertips. But that's the world we live in now. A world of options where everything is available to us. So when we come along and say, actually, Christianity is the only true faith, that sounds implausible. How can there be only one thing that's right in our world full of endless, limitless options? Exclusivity can be a stumbling block for our modern ears. I want to define a couple terms quickly. I said exclusivity, and and there's several different terms that can describe different worldviews, different faiths, several different isms that characterize uh, different ways people see the world. So one is exclusivism. Exclusivism is the worldview that states only one faith or religion can be true and that all opposed to it are false. That's exclusivism. One is true, all those opposed are false. So Christianity, Judaism, Islam, those are all exclusivist faiths who purport to be true. There's another framework, a way of seeing the world, called pluralism. Pluralism holds that every religion is true, and each religion provides a a genuine encounter with the ultimate. So the pluralist would say, well, they're all right, or they all have a piece of truth in their own way, and, and none are wrong. And all faiths, all religions can bring you to an encounter with God or the ultimate reality or whatever it may be. That's pluralism. Then there's, similar to that, relativism. Relativism holds that each religion is true to the one that holds it but that there's no ultimate objective truth. So there's no one true faith, no ultimate truth, but whatever is true for you is true for you, and that's good enough. That's relativism. Then there is inclusivism. Inclusivism believes that one religion is the true religion, but other religions can be true by implication or derivation. And what I mean by that is, One might say that Christianity is the true religion, but if you're a good Muslim, by being a good Muslim, really you're adhering to true Christianity, and you can be a good Christian by being a good Muslim. You you just didn't know you were actually a Christian worshiping the one true God. So, by the way, C.S. Lewis, that's his kind of, he toyed around with this. Read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll see. That's inclusivism. There's one true religion, but you can kind of get there through other faiths. So there's some isms for you. Most people in our culture hold to some form of pluralism or relativism. Either all religions are true and have some truth in them, which is pluralism, or no religions have ultimate truth but can be true for you if you hold it truly. That's relativism. A 2019 Pew Research poll found that among teenagers, 
30% of teens said one religion is true. So 30% of teenagers in 2019 were exclusivist. So a smaller percentage of that would be Christian, right? But 30% of teens were exclusivist. 45% said multiple faiths are true. So 45% of teenagers are pluralists. About 23% said there's little or no truth in any religion. That's relativism. So the minority, I think in our culture, would hold to some type of exclusivism. However, Christianity is exclusivist. And you would say, how can we believe in such a narrow-minded, arrogant religion that says this way is right and others are wrong? I want to deal with that before we work into the text, just real quickly, and point out that every faith is exclusivist and every framework is exclusivist. Exclusivism is not exclusive to Christianity or even other faiths that claim to be exclusivist. What do I mean by that? Even the pluralist is exclusivist. Why? Because the pluralist says the exclusivist is wrong. The pluralist says all religions are true and all religions have truth. By saying that, you're disagreeing with the exclusivists and saying they're wrong. So, the question is, what gave you that special knowledge? Whenever you hold to any faith, by definition, you're disagreeing with somebody else who holds a faith that is incompatible to yours. It is unavoidable. So everybody, to some extent, is exclusivist. Even the agnostic who says, we can't really know. You'd say, how do you know? You can't really know what's true. Okay, well, by saying that, you're actually directly contradicting what I believe, which says you can know what's true. So which one of us is right? There's a shell game that's played uh, with the pluralists, with the relativists, saying, oh, they're all true, none are true. And they claim some type of enlightened nobility. But really, they are claiming a worldview contradictory to others, so they are excluding others in their worldview. In fact, I would go maybe one step farther and say that the pluralist and their relativist are maybe the most arrogant of all. People say, Christians, we're really arrogant for saying there's one true faith. I'm saying in response, you can't can't know that. You can't know which one is true. And the pluralist would say, in fact, all faiths are essentially the same. They're all part of truth, and they all have few differences between them, and they're all essentially true. Now think about that statement for a second, and how arrogant that statement is. Because the Christian... The Muslim, the Jew, would all very much disagree with you on that. The Christian, the Muslim, the Jew would disagree with each other. Namely, we would disagree with each other on who Jesus is. And our faiths would be incompatible. So Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah who died and rose again to save the world from sins. That is what we believe. Muslims say Jesus was a good prophet but did not die on the cross and was rescued by God. Those are two incompatible faiths. They can't both be right. 
Jews say that Jesus was a false Messiah and ultimately a blasphemer and that he died but didn't rise again. Again, all three of those are different conceptions as to who Jesus is. Buddhism and Islam are two radically different faiths. Islam is monotheistic and believes we must be good to be saved to eternal life. Buddhism believes the ultimate reality isn't personal and there's no enduring life after death and sin and salvation don't really play part of it in all, or part of it in it at all. So Buddhism and Islam are totally contradictory to each other. So here you have billions of people throughout time and space, either Christian, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, and then the enlightened pluralist comes along and says, don't you guys know your own faiths? You're all the same. And those billions would say, we disagree. How arrogant of the pluralist and the relativist to say, I know better than all you billions. William Lane Craig says of the pluralist, he thinks everybody else's religious beliefs are false, that the religious pluralist alone has seen the truth. Only religious pluralists, who are a tiny minority of mankind, are right, and everybody else is wrong. How arrogant can you get? Or Norman Geisler says, pluralists can be as intolerant as anyone else. I would say, I think it's actually a pretty good thing to be exclusivist. To be able to say, you can know what is right and wrong. You can know truth and error. We want our doctors to be exclusivists. Right? When you go to the doctor, you want your doctor to be able to say, that is or is not cancer. You do not want a physician who says, well... There's different opinions on this. You want an exclusivist doctor who's able to discern truth and error, what is or is not there. Even if that truth makes you uncomfortable. I was talking to somebody recently, and I experienced this when my mom said the same thing. She had breast cancer in middle school. Doing fine today, you've met her. Um, but she had breast cancer in middle school, and she said, It's so weird, I don't feel sick. I don't feel like there's anything wrong. And yet, the prescription is to go and undergo a treatment of medicine that is just brutal. Why do you do that? Because you believe something is true even if you don't feel it or experience it. You believe the cancer is there and could be damaging even if you don't really feel it or experience it. And that is true of truth. Truth is there and is real despite how you feel about it or despite how you encounter it. So how you feel about Christianity being exclusive does not have any bearing on whether or not it is true. Do you understand what I'm saying? That how you respond to that truth claim has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not Christianity is true. And, and some would say, well, you are only a Christian because you were born in the modern U.S. and you were in, born in a Christian environment. And I would say, that might be true, but it actually has no bearing whatsoever, no impact whatsoever on whether or not Christianity is true. You know what else is also true? I believe that the earth revolves around the sun. I only believe that because I had the advantage of being born in a scientifically enlightened time. If I was born in ancient Greece or long ago, I might believe that the sun revolved around the earth.
just because I came to my enlightened position because I happened to be in a privileged time and place doesn't mean it's not true. How I came to know the truth has no bearing on whether or not it is true or not. The question is, is Christianity true? You're going to have to decide that for yourself. And maybe the better question is, does Christianity claim to be true? Does God claim to be the only exclusive God? Does Jesus Christ claim to be the only Savior? So now, having said all that, let's get to Isaiah 44. Because here, God clearly proclaims and declares with force and passion that he is the only true God. And what you're going to have to do at the end of this is ask, do I believe this or not? But God himself will claim to be the exclusive only Lord. And here in Isaiah 44, the, the context is the, the Jews were captive in Babylon. They were under Babylonian captivity. They had been conquered. And they were in a place that worshipped other gods. And their future wasn't looking very bright. And here in the midst of that, God comes and says, I am the one true God and I can save you. Don't bow down to any other idols while you're in captivity. Trust in me. That's essentially the message of Isaiah 44. But let's walk through that. We're going to walk through it pretty quickly. And first in Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8, we see that the Lord alone is God. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8 says that the Lord alone is God. God is God. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So here is God saying, I alone am God. He's declaring the uniqueness of God. He is the Lord, the King, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts and armies. He says, I am the first and I am the last. What does that mean? Jesus says something similar later in Revelation. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and I'm the last, meaning nothing came before me, nothing will outlive me. There is nothing in all creation, in all space and time that will exist outside of God. There is no one who came before him to create him. And there is no one who will bury him. He is the first and the last. He is God alone. So he says, there's no one like me. This is an open challenge to any other being in the universe. This is God basically saying, come and bring it. Declare your worthiness. Step to me. <laughs> Who has the attributes I have? Is there, is there anyone else who knows all things, who has all power, who is everywhere, who's created all things, who is perfectly holy, perfectly loving, perfectly just, perfectly good? Is there anyone else who is like God? The Lord says, I know not anybody else who is like me. So this is his open taunt and provocation to all other contenders for Godhood. There is no one like me. God says. He is uniquely God. He has formed his people and guided them. He will tell them what will be in the end. He will speak the end from the beginning. He can predict what will happen. He knows the future. That is a feature of God. Something only God can do. And because of that, he alone is the rock, the fortress, the safety, 
the security of Israel because he alone is God. It is a grand statement of exclusivity. Sometimes hard questions come from kids. So when we were doing our bedtime routine one night and praying and reading a story and trying desperately to get pajamas on and teeth brushed, one of my kids asked me, why is God God? Okay. How do I explain this? You know, you have one of those moments where how am I going to explain this to my child? Why is God God? A profound question. I think the answer is because if somebody else were God, he wouldn't be. Simple enough. If, if somebody else made God, then that being would be God, and we worship him. And if somebody else made that God, well, then we'd worship, and we'd just keep going down the line until we found the one who had started off the whole thing, and that one would be God. But we are told in all the revelation we have in creation and scripture and life, Everything we know is that God is God and there is no other. There's no one before him. There's no one after. It ends all the way up the line. It ends with him. He's the one who's created all things. So he is God. Somebody made him, that being would be God. But we don't know of anybody else. So we praise him alone. We have no other gods but him. We praise him because he is worthy and because it's for our good that we worship him alone. And that's where the next verses go into. It is good for us to worship him alone. And it's bad for us to worship any false gods. That's where the next uh, passage is going to go here, verses 9 through 20. We see that the Lord alone is worthy of worship. The Lord alone is God and the Lord alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of our praise. This is a warning against idolatry. In the ancient Near Eastern religions and cultures, uh, idolatry was common. They would worship their gods by making figures and images of them out of wood or metal. And that was how they worshipped gods. And God is very much against this, right? Do not make any graven image. God is against idolatry, but this is how other religions practice. So when the Lord is attacking idolatry, what he's really doing is attacking all other religions that would worship any god but him. Now look at how he attacks idolatry. What the Lord has to say about idolatry. Is there anybody else worthy of worship? Well, let's see. Verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. I'll stop there. Jesus gives us interesting wisdom in Luke 6.40. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. But Jesus says to his disciples, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Interesting concept. If you have a teacher, you're not going to outgrow them. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Now, this is especially true before Google. Whatever you know, you're going to have to be taught by somebody and you're not going to get any knowledge that your teacher doesn't have. Right? That's what he's saying. You're going to grow up to be like your teacher. This is also true in worship. 
You're going to grow up and become like what you worship. Whatever you set as your highest ideal, your highest priority, whatever it is that you bow down to and worship, you'll become like that. You will grow into that, and you can't grow past it. So if you worship money, you will become a greedy person. If you worship an idol, you'll become as worthless as that idol and as dead and lifeless as that thing which you worship. And that's what this passage is saying. You will be shamed. You will grow into lifelessness and foolishness of idolatry. And look how foolish idolatry is. Verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. For you are my God. You see the stupidity of idolatry. It talks about the, the ironsmith, worker in metal. He's going to make a god of metal. And he works at it, and his arm gets tired, and he grows faint, and he doesn't have enough water, he gets dehydrated. Why? Because the man isn't a god. God doesn't faint, doesn't grow weary, and yet this ironsmith does as he's making this idol. Or consider the carpenter, and he has tools and a pencil and a compass and a ruler, and he draws it all out. And notice how many tools this carpenter must use to make this idol, and how different that is from God, who spoke creation into existence by his breath. And what does this carpenter make? He makes this little figure out of wood, in the image of a man, because he can't make things in the image of God. And this little figure just sits on a shelf in a house, as opposed to God, who we know who cannot dwell in a house, who is over all things. And this carpenter, like, where did he get the wood for it? Well, he chopped down a tree that the rain fell on, he couldn't even make the tree grow. He had to be, depend on God for the tree to grow. Then he takes that wood, and some of it he just throws in the fire, and that warms him. He's able to eat because he bakes over it. Then he says, well, what do I do with this leftover wood? I've got some scrap, some remnant, some trash. I'll make a god out of it. Carve it up, and then, and then I'll take this dead thing that could have been fire for food, I'll take this dead thing, and then I'll bow before that and say, save me. You should hear the mocking in this. 
the derision, the scorn that God has for idolatry. This is how God views all the worship of all other gods. Pointless, stupid, does not bring life. Because this dead thing can't make you live, it cannot save you. In fact, if you bow down to this other god that you've made, you'll be dead yourself. Verses 18 through 20, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, so they cannot see, and their hearts they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? G.K. Chesterton once said, When people cease to believe in God, they do not believe in nothing, they believe in anything. This is a picture of a person who will believe in anything, even the block of wood that he fashioned, asking it to save him. And the end is deception, the end is death, the end is feasting on ashes. There are many who will say, and we might wonder, are all religions essentially the same? Scripture says, no. Other faiths, worship of other gods, leads to death. That is Scripture's claim, and the Bible's claim, and God's claim. Why would God be so exclusive about worship? So stingy about worshiping him alone? Because worship of all else leads to death. He's the only one who can bring life. There's, there's a common sentiment that goes around and says, it doesn't really matter what you have faith in, just long as you have faith. Right? Have you heard something along these lines? That's the whole point. As long as you have true, sincere faith, it doesn't matter what you have faith in, as long as your faith is sincere. And I would say that's a horribly dangerous lie. As we explore that and think about that for a second. Sincere faith in the wrong thing can be horribly deadly. There are those who sincerely believe that God would smile upon them if they killed people of darker skin color. What you have faith in matters. There are those who believe that suicide bombings would please God. And they were sincere in their faith. What you believe in really matters. Not all faiths are the same. They are not all equal. Sincere faith alone isn't enough. Faith in the right one is essential. Faith in the wrong thing could be life-threatening. And that's what this passage is saying. Do you have faith in the right thing? Because faith in the wrong thing leads to death. And not all faiths are created equal. Is your God worthy of infinite worship? Can he save you? That's the last few verses of Isaiah 44 about, verses 21 through 28. First, the Lord alone is God. The Lord alone is worthy of worship. And then lastly, the Lord alone is our Savior. That's the point of verses 21 through 28. The Lord alone saves. He alone is our Savior. And he alone is worthy of worship because of it. Verse 21. 
Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This is the promise of salvation that only God can speak, only God can save Israel. Remember, Israel's in Babylonian captivity. God here is promising, I will save you. Return to me, for your salvation is found in me. Notice what he says. He does not say, and God does not say, return to me and I might save you. Come back, repent, and then if you play your cards right, if you bet on me, then I might just save you. What does he say? Return to me, for I have saved you. I have already redeemed you. I have already blotted out your transgressions. Your sins have already become a mist in me. This is what the Lord says. Return to me because once you do, you will find that you have already been forgiven. That's the kind of salvation that only God can provide. It is already there for you. This is what motivates us to repentance, motivates us to confession. Not that God might save us if we do, but, that, but when we do that, we find that God has already saved us. He has already provided salvation for us. And this is what the world is to rejoice in. The trees, the heavens, the depths, all of you clap and rejoice because you're no longer going to be made out of... Um, have idols made out of you for false worship, but creation will rejoice when God is properly worshipped, when he properly can save us and does save us. All creation will rejoice in it. goes on to verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. Did he have any assistance in that? No, he alone stretched out the heavens. Who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. What's God saying in all that? I alone am the creator who stretched out the heavens. I alone can and will save you. I am the only one who can fulfill the promises my servants have made and bring you, Israel, out of captivity, back into Jerusalem. I will rebuild your city, rebuild your temple, rebuild your worship. I can bring you back, and I will do it because I am the Lord. I am the one who can save, and I'll even use a foreign king who hasn't even been born yet to do it. He mentions the name Cyrus here. Cyrus is the king of Persia who would come on the scene more than 100 years after this is written. Israel is under Babylonian captivity. More than 100 years after this was written, Persians would come and conquer Babylon under the King Cyrus. God is saying, I will use him to conquer the Babylonians, to release you, to send you back to your home in Israel. And I can do that because I am God and I can use the nations and kings and whatever I want in this world to save you. God alone is the Savior and there is salvation in no one else. 
And again, we might ask, isn't that narrow? That he alone is Savior. That there's only one way of salvation through God alone. Isn't that narrow? When I would ask, something to explore, what number would be sufficient? What would be a fair and just, sufficient number of ways of salvation? Hypothetically, we could say, let's say there were 50 ways of salvation. That seems gracious and generous, 50 ways of salvation. But isn't that unfair to the 51st? What about that 51st person? They went by the 51st way of salvation. That's so cruel to leave them out. That's very exclusive. What makes them any worse than the 49th? Let's expand the number to 3,000 ways of salvation. There are 3,000 ways and 3,000 gods. What about the 3,000 second? What makes them any worse off? So exclusive to only have only 3,000 ways of salvation. Why not millions or infinite number? The fact of the matter is, there is one God, one Savior, one way of salvation. And anyone can come to him. The problem for us is not that we don't have sufficient ways of salvation. The problem for humanity is that we've rejected the one way of salvation. God has clearly made himself known, and all people have rejected him. So does God give up on us? No. He sends himself to us that we might be saved. In his Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus is our exclusive Lord and Savior. I want to close just by reading some of what Jesus says. We are Christians. It's a Christian church, so it makes sense to hear from Christ, from Jesus. Is Jesus exclusive? Does he teach that there's only one way of salvation, one true faith? What does Jesus have to say? That should shape how we think and how we believe. The world thinks of Jesus as a pretty good guy, good teacher. So what does this good teacher teach to us about salvation? I'm just going to read some verses from John just to narrow it down. We could read from all sorts throughout the Gospels, but I'm just going to choose a few from John to get a handle on what Jesus teaches about this. First, you can consider what Jesus says in John 3, 12 through 13. John chapter 3, Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? No one comes from heaven but me. Jesus is claiming exclusive knowledge of heavenly things. I alone have the proper perspective to teach you about heaven and the things of God. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
Just a few verses later, Jesus says in John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That sounds very binary of Jesus, right? Two options. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Those are your two choices. Jesus also claims that anyone who is a disciple of his will know truth and know the truth. Jesus says in John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus thinks that we can know the truth and be certain in it if we know him. And then, of course, his big claim in John 14, 6, and maybe some of you have been waiting all morning for me to say this. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is clearly exclusivist. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. That's why the apostles say in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to the Father. There is one way of salvation, one really true faith that leads to eternal life. Here's the good news. There are an infinite number of ways to Jesus. One way to the Father through Jesus Christ. An infinite number of ways to Jesus. No matter your background, no matter your culture, heritage, time, place, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whoever you are, all can come to Jesus and find life and salvation in him. He is the only one sent by the Father, the only God who was born a man, the only one who lived a sinless life, the only one who died on a cross for the sins of the world, the only one resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven to rule, the only one who will come one day to judge the world. He is the only Savior. So we may ask, is there another way? The funny thing is, Jesus asked the same question. Praying in the garden. God, could there possibly be any other way? I mean, what is the response? No. The only way to save fallen people is through the Son of Man, Son of God, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. So every time we see the cross, we see this is the only way that people will be saved. What other salvation could you want? Would you want more than the death of the Son of God? Something different? Is the death of Jesus Christ not enough? Or is Jesus sufficiently exclusive and exclusively sufficient to save? Is Christianity really the only true faith? Yes. Because Jesus Christ is the only one who has died for your sins and can raise you to life.
you pray with me? Father, we come this morning, we confess as boldly as we may speak that this question of exclusivity is actually pretty challenging for us because we live in a world with many other uh, different faiths and thought processes and frameworks and we have to keep going back to you uh, and back to the cross to be reminded that this is the only way that sinful people are going to be saved and only by faith in Jesus Christ do we come to you. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort us in that truth and remind us that your Son is sufficient, he is enough, that he alone is our Savior, and that you alone are God. And that's not a truth we came to because we are better than others, because we have superior minds. It's a truth we came to because we know how sinful we are and how dependent we are. Um, You are gracious enough to reveal your Son to us. We are undeserving people serving a wonderful, majestic God. We thank you for the salvation, the faith we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.